All the music that you'll hear on today's podcast is from AK Samba. This is the Brazilian Beats with episode 78 with Darren Cottingham, director of AK Samba in Auckland, New Zealand. Join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion and music making community one interview at a time. This is Courtney. And this is Diana. Welcome. Hi. How are you, Courtney? Welcome to you, Diana. Welcome to your podcast. <laughs> oh, why? why? Thank you. <laughs> this is your I podcast. I appreciate that. This is all of our podcasts, everyone. Oh. Hope everybody's doing well. Staying healthy. Mm-hmm. Staying inside. Staying masked. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, today, Courtney, who do we have? We have Darren Cottingham, and he um, talked to us a couple weeks ago. Darren is the musical director of AK Samba in Auckland, New Zealand. He's lived there for the past 26 years. He has a background in television and composing music for video games, which is, that's I think this is the first person that's had that in their background. Uh, He writes much of AK Samba's repertoire, as well as putting together occasional side projects involving other musicians. His interests lie in the fusion and evolution of Brazilian rhythms with other musical influences. It was great to hear uh, another perspective from um, the other side of the world. Yeah, I think we've only had a couple interviews from that side of the world. We've had Rabakari, often mentioned Rabakari. Um, our friend uh, Tak from Japan and our friend Tony from the Philippines. That's right. Eastern Hemisphere. Yes. Hopefully we'll have somebody somebody else from that area soon, too. Who's next? Oh, I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, listeners. We think you like us. We think you like this podcast and, you know, we love doing the podcast um, and having these conversations and interactions with the global community. We love doing it, but it is a labor of love. Um, We spend a lot of time, equipment, money, and we drink a lot of coffee. The podcast is free and it will remain free, but it is not free to make. Please help us keep these conversations going and learn more by going to ko-fi.com slash the Brazilian beat. That's ko-fi, K-O hyphen F-I.com slash the Brazilian beat. We know there are a lot of things to support out there right now. Um, and if you have the means, we'd uh, like to invite you to join our community online um, and help support the podcast. We appreciate it. And we appreciate those of you who have already contributed. Yes, thank you. If you need samba instruments, straps, sticks, mallets, you can get those at gosamba.net. So go check it out. I've got a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of kaishas. What's what's the big seller right now? Uh, Chimbao's. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Flying off the shelves. Nice. Yeah. You have, but you still have some if people yes. are interested. Yes, yes. Still have some. Did. There you Got go. a lot of kaishas too. The kaishas are, um, those are actually been flying off the shelves too, actually. But uh, yeah, get them before they're gone. <laughs> and get out of the way because they're flying off the shelves. <laughs> That's right. Go net. <laughs> <laughs> if you are looking for lessons, there are so many awesome possibilities. Check out our friend Dudu Fuentes. Also, um, Mestre Junior Sapayo, also 
Mestri Pitoku, for your Koku Northeastern styles, Maracatu. There's uh, Douglas Georgie, who is the Kaisha director at Portela. He's teaching, a con- he's a Condomblé master. He's teaching Condomblé. Who else do we have? Oh, Lucas right. Eduardo, one of our one of our um, teachers that was on, teaches a great class. He gave me, he's so nice. He For doing the podcast and, and throwing them a little bit of advertisement and things, he gave me a free Hippiki class, and it was so much fun. I was laughing the whole time. It was I mean, I was just smiling the whole time, I should say. He's a very generous, beautiful spirit, that guy. He so anyway, is. yeah, check him. him out. Also, um, Francisco Machado is doing classes. Um, Mesti Ailton, look him up if you're looking for lessons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, um, upcoming at the end of the month, is the International Samba Congress. That's right. And that's music and dance. Um, so if you're interested, look that up. International Samba Congress. Yeah, we can put a link to that too. We that's can. all done by Anna Laidley or Ania Malandro, who we also interviewed mm-hmm. in the 30s, 36 maybe, I want to say. Way back when, yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. All right, you all. I hope you enjoy this episode. Courtney, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Diana? I'm fine on this lovely Saturday afternoon. What's going on today with our show? We have somebody from the future. <laughs> he is from the future. <laughs> He's living in tomorrow. <laughs> Who do we have today? We have Darren Cottingham. Thank you for being here, Darren. Thanks for inviting me and uh, welcome from sunny Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, yeah. nice. Where it is tomorrow. It's Sunday now and it's Saturday for you. <laughs> it is. Weird, isn't it? People struggle right. with this time difference. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be more difficult going if you go to visit Brazil because for us, it's a four hour difference going to Rio. But for you guys, it's like a yeah. huge change. What's weird is that you don't get jet lag one way and you get terrible jet lag the other oh. way. Wow. And which I don't know which direction is. is worse? Uh, coming back mm. for yeah. some reason. I don't know why. I think it's because you're already tired, like you're already yeah. exhausted from, yeah. uh, from your yeah, trip. that is a good hypothesis. You've only just adjusted to a new time zone and now your body's going, what the hell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's only yeah. two weeks after. <laughs> yeah. Screw you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for being here. And um, so let's get to the interview. Where did you grow up and when did you start playing music and getting exposed to Brazilian music? Um, I actually grew up in uh, just outside a town called Boston in uh, England. Now, that's the original Boston, uh, not the big one that you guys have, So mm-hmm. where the Pilgrim Fathers sailed from, although <laughs> I think you probably learned that they come from Plymouth, but originally oh, yeah. they came from Boston. Um, and it's a little godforsaken village just north of that. Hopefully no one from there is listening. And um, I got out of there <laughs> at about age 19. But um, my parents... Uh, my dad was musical, so um, they started me on piano when I was about four. And uh, I used to nice. have to practice in the kind of the, it wasn't a basement, but it was a kind of a room right at the bottom of the house. And, you know, when you're a kid and you've got a, a kind of a fertile imagination and there's monsters coming out of the walls. <laughs> By the time I was seven, I'd managed to vomit and tantrum my way out of piano <laughs> lessons forever. 
So, so that, that was work. it for, for formal <laughs> education, which was fine because I used to go to this uh, this piano teacher called Mrs. Lewis, and she had a great Dane, and that great Dane was taller than me. And it was quite intimidating that you'd walk Whoa. in for this piano lesson. And she was like this 80-year-old silver-haired <laughs> woman with a ruler that would tap the back of your wrists. And, um, and, and yeah, yeah, so that was it. But fortunately, uh, we moved house because my dad played piano as well. He bought one of the first digital pianos. So this would be back in the, yeah. I don't know, kind of late 80s. And mm-hmm. he put it next to the telly. And then he taught me some kind of chords and things like that. Uh, and then I started playing along on the headphones to the TV. And then eventually I, he brought this uh, four-track recorder down from the attic. And this thing was yeah, super heavy, like anything made in the 70s. That, had, that was electronics, had real wood on it and all that kind of stuff. And um, <laughs> so I started writing music uh, and then ended up uh, being a composer for 10 years when I moved to New Zealand. Mm. So, yeah, so that was my introduction to music. But then like, being a composer is quite a difficult sort of job. You end up working in no sunlight for 15 hours a day it's impossible for me to get a tan to this what kind, day what kind of <laughs> what kind of jobs like for what kind of what what how does being a composer work um oh so there's music that's required for all kinds of stuff i mean tv commercials were mostly right. what i did but i did a lot of computer game stuff and i did wow, actually i started gotcha. i started with cd roms so this was in 1994 actually before then i did yeah some things like wedding video soundtracks and all yeah right just, right yeah the kind of thing you that you would consider selling your soul um, <laughs> but um yes yeah, so i got into doing some international uh sort of CD-ROMs and computer game things, worked with a few artists in New Zealand. Um, and for a while, I was kind of the only person here that sort of understood multimedia sound, so I had a little niche for myself. Mm. But it, mm. it's quite a hard job because you're only really as good as your last gig. Um, and then I ended up working on an album with a guy called Russell Walder, and he's one of the world's best oboe players. And we spent 19 months on this album, mainly because wow. Russell is a perfectionist. And about the time we released it was when Napster and Kazaa and all those file sharing things became really popular. So we were expecting, because Russell was quite well known, we were expecting to sell two or 300,000 because that's what his previous album had sold. And this guy is like Grammy nominated. And I think we sold something like 25,000 because the day after it was released, you could download 32 different files from it, from Napster. Mm. Um, And so... I think for people that don't understand the impact of file sharing and illegal downloading yeah. of music on musicians, that's 19 yeah. months of our life where if we calculated our hourly rate, it would be probably under $2 an hour. So that sort of started this sort of disillusionment with me with mm. writing music for a living. And, mm. and eventually I, I felt like I'd burned out. So I sold all my gear. And then about, I think, three or four months maybe after I'd so stop doing that. I saw an ad for a, a Brazilian drumming workshop. And so I went and did that. But at the time, I still felt like I wasn't over the sort of the burnout. So it wasn't until the following Easter, about eight months later, that I saw them again. And, and they said, oh, you know, are you going to join or what? And so I joined um, and, you know, tried to make music fun again, rather than music being something that you were you had to do to to put food on the table. Right, right. I want to I want to point out that you sold all your gear except for your guitar, <laughs> and that will and that will come up yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, 
So can you tell us how you got to New Zealand from from England? Yeah, I actually, when I was um, 17, I did an exchange. Uh, well, it's like a, there, there was an exchange student um, from New Brunswick that was at the high school that I was at. And I went to stay with them one summer and I thought I really like Canada better than um you know than the UK and, and New Brunswick to me growing up in this uh, previously mentioned godforsaken village was so cosmopolitan um, you know it was just like it's just, oh, it's just something different really and so then I um I tried to move from the UK to Canada but they wanted you to have you know a degree half a yeah. million dollars you know yeah. I was about 495 grand short at the time so <laughs> right, I, right. And, and I was just yeah I was just 18 years old um and I'd I'd gone to university for a day and thought this is totally not for me I cannot get my washing done here so I'd gone back home um and thought you know how can I actually you know what and I wanted to be a composer as well not a psychologist I don't know why I chose psychology to do at university and then I think my constant kind of you know I want to get out of England uh, badgering my parents they they sort of thought well yeah we're not that enamored with the UK at the moment um so they looked into Australia and New Zealand and that, then they decided on New Zealand so fortunately they got a visa just in time for me to qualify under their visa so hmm. your parents went yeah yeah they like came. you were like I, I I don't like my tiny town and then your parents were like well let's all move to New Zealand yeah they like they love me so much they're gonna move <laughs> no. um yeah I'm not exactly sure wow. why um because I was thinking Canada but I think my mum thought Canada's too cold right mm. um so yeah let's go to New Zealand and then so we all came on holiday at the beginning of 94 while they were scouting around places, um, with my mum probably thinking, where can we move where my hair's not going to go frizzy? And, <laughs> so, and that was not Auckland because Auckland's humid. So they, they ended up in Napier, which is on the East Coast. Um, and so then I, I'm, I stayed. They left me behind, went back to the UK and you know, sold up everything and then moved back here. So, hmm. yeah, so then I've always lived in Auckland um, uh, since then, which is, yeah, hmm. 26 is years. That, was that pretty wow. common for... British um, folks to move to New I think Zealand? so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the uh, New Zealand is a, is a land of uh, immigrants, really, um, mm. and a, a large proportion of them are from the UK. And I think the UK is still one of the, the um, largest percentages of, of uh, migrants, mm. um, although I mean, it's probably been, it may have been overtaken by China or India recently. Or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, but certainly, I mean, New Zealand's built on a kind of a British cultural uh, base, I suppose. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, cool. Yeah, if, so you, if our listeners remember, our guest Rob Arkari also moved to Australia from the UK. Yeah, That's it's right. quite common. Although, I mean, a lot of uh, the original uh, members of Australia that moved from the UK were criminals and forced. Right. To <laughs> and um, as opposed to New Zealanders who actually had a thing called a 10 quid ticket where you paid 10 pounds and then you basically, you got your passage to New Zealand and, and then you're encouraged to do things like farming and stuff like that as to develop the country. So. So New Zealand and Australia developed in two slightly different ways. I, I actually really love Australia and, and I could live there, I think. But mm. I, I mean, I, I love New Zealand more. Are you, do you have dual citizenship or do you just have? 
I do. One. Yeah, yeah. I oh, got that okay. New Zealand passport. I used to have nightmares. So um, I'd have this nightmare where I was trapped on one side of a fast flowing river, and that was the UK. And then the other side of this fast flowing river was New Zealand. And I just couldn't get there. It was, it was too wide huh. to jump. There was no bridge. As soon as I got my passport, that nightmare stopped. So Amazing. Tells you how much I really did not like the UK. Right. I think part of that was because I don't like soccer. And soccer is the, <laughs> actually the first religion there. <laughs> Are you a rugby yeah. fan? <laughs> I was going to say. Oh, yeah. I, that's right. I moved to a country where it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even more so here, I think. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, have to, I have to pretend. Yeah. <laughs> pretend you're a huge fan of the All Blacks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, tell us more about. We were. I kind of interrupted you from you. You were getting into how you, how you were starting to get into the Brazilian thing. Uh, yeah. Well, so um, AK Samba had been going about two years, and they were running workshops. And um, <clears throat> at the time, it was a very kind of very much a community group so you know if if you wanted to join you could just join didn't matter about your musical experience and all that sort of stuff and um it had grown out of uh, some university friends um and they had they had started practicing in a place called western park which is in quite an expensive suburb so i think on the second practice they were moved on by noise control and never allowed back <laughs> uh, um and uh, then they had, they had found this bowling club um and I think a friend, a, a, someone, a friend of someone in the band was on the committee in the bowling club, so they, they got to practice here. It's still where we practice now, about sort of 15, wow. 16 years later. Um, so they were running these workshops. Uh, I came along and um, I actually enjoyed it, but like I said before, I, was just, I just felt like I was too burned out to actually even do anything musical. I mean, I hadn't listened to the radio. I hadn't played the piano since I'd sold all my gear. Um, but then I, yeah, I met them again and I joined. And then the guy that started AK Samba, he wanted to leave and he formed a band called Batacada Sound Machine. Um, if you want to look them up, they're actually really, really good. Uh, it was about a 15-piece band. And they became a festival band and they wanted they, they toured um, different countries and toured New Zealand. So he, And then he, he wanted to move from Auckland as well. So I actually took over the whole kind of directing part within about sort of nine months of joining. Wow. Um, and yes, and that would probably be the end of uh, 2005, I think. Was percussion completely new to you or? Um, not the concepts, but the mm. motor skills, yes. I mm -hmm. hadn't played drums before. I, I don't, when I was a composer, I used to you know, do hand percussion sure. and things like that if I needed to, but mostly you're using samples because mm -hmm. uh, in New Zealand, you know, the budgets aren't as big as you might have um, in England or the US so you've not got the the budget to hire in session musicians so you, mm -hmm. if you've got a gig that if you've got a piece that you're writing you might go right well yeah I'm going to get a guitar player because it's difficult to achieve on it um, with samples or mm -hmm. you know I might get a violin player but some of the things you know you might be able to do bass and drums and you know, all that kind of stuff uh, digitally so so yeah it's just more out of budgetary necessity than yeah, than <laughs> anything else gotcha Wow, that's that's pretty quick to take over leading the group. Yeah, well, I suppose the advantage was it was only two or three years old, so we didn't actually have that much material. So, um, gotcha. yeah, it, yeah, it didn't take too long to to get into it, and um, because I could, uh, we use a sort of a drum machine notation for writing the music down. So, and that was familiar to me anyway. Mm. So, it was relatively easy. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, in, uh, I set about actually uh, increasing our repertoire quite dramatically, which has had its problems, really. So, which is, it's just made joining the band very difficult for anyone that's not yeah. got any experience, you know? Um, I think but, that's a problem for a, a lot of groups is, it's just, <laughs> here's a giant home here of yeah yeah exactly stuff to learn yeah well and there's nothing like there, there are no melodies to help you remember the rhythms we use a lot of mnemonics mm-hmm. a lot of them food related actually um but uh, and that i think helps people quite a lot but it's really daunting if you join the band playing tambourine you really would struggle for six months yeah. i think yeah 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 I think a lot of I think that's that's true for a lot of groups, especially tambourine. Mm, yeah, yeah, and it sort of comes down to how we recruit as well. So, different bands have a, a different philosophy about recruiting. So, um, ours is yeah. First, we've got a limited practice space because we're practicing this bowling club. So, the the a reasonable maximum number of people that we can have in that room at any one time is forty. Otherwise, it's just unbearably loud, and and also you know. Uh, personal body space as well you know like Mm -hmm. once you've got 40 people in in that size room then it's quite close so we have to look and go you know is a space in the band um yeah have we lost (laughs) have we lost someone you know um, a lot of people you know they might uh, new zealand's got a very transient population as well and and Mm -hmm. our samba band seems like it's full of people who might just be here for two years or five years and then they go back to the, the you know, country that they came from, they were just having an overseas experience. Mm-hmm. So then we're constantly recruiting, or you know, people have kids, and then you know they might leave for five years and then come back later. Yeah. Um, so, so this kind of first step in our recruitment process is, yeah, do, do we need someone? Um, and then, um, and then we have a workshop. So then we're looking at, you know, can a person actually play at least a little bit, or you know, do we think they have some kind of ability? Um, I mean, most people can play. Most most people have some kind of rhythm. I mean, we don't walk down the street in some kind of arrhythmic stumble, you know. <laughs> or we, you know, we, you can operate your legs in a fairly consistent tempo. So it's just sort of transmitting that or transferring that to your to your arms or your your hands. So yeah, we'll persevere with some people, but some people just cannot pick it up. So I mean, that would uh, eliminate them there because we are now we don't see ourselves as a community band. Now we see ourselves as a kind of a semi professional semi-community band because you know mm. we get paid for gigs and so if people are paying we need to be a certain quality and we don't have the luxury of having a lot of members and having a kind of an a team and a b team which i also think doesn't work culturally because it's a bit elitist um so you know so once you've got someone that can play can they commit because you don't want someone that's only going to turn up once a month because it takes an eternity to get any new material mm-hmm. um and then our final sort of gate for recruiting is does this person seem like they're going to be a dick? And if they do, <laughs> they don't get in. It's How do you detail. assess the last two? How do you uh, do that? The dick meter. Because sometimes you don't know if they're going to be committed and sometimes you don't know if they're going to be a dick. So like, how do you assess that? Yeah, well, um, the commitment, you just have to take them at their word. And then we give them a six-week trial anyway. So then if they turn up to all six weeks, then they've started to form that commitment habit. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. people have different things happen, and you know, yeah. you're kind of lenient. Of you know, people go on holiday, and you know, um, but you you want to be seeing people there at least three weeks a month, really. Um, then the rest of it, I think you kind of get a feeling. We've got a really great group of people in AK Samba. There are no 
big awful personalities there's no mm. one really i mean you've got people that maybe don't choose wouldn't choose to hang out with some of the other people but there's no one there that you think really this band would be so much better without them because <laughs> they rarely get in we, we've really only had that one or two times That's um, so awesome yeah uh, and people i think really appreciate that as well that it's fairly yeah. drama free um yeah and we try and get as many people involved as possible in running the band. I mean, I, I'm the musical director, but I have a, a co-director as well. And people have their say in what they like and, and what they want. I mean, I don't necessarily need to agree with them. And, and um, yeah, we might still do it um, because it's, it's kind of about keeping a, the band a bit harmonious. We've got a committee that deals with the day to day. We've got a costume committee that, you know, gets in and uh, visits, you know, secondhand stores or um op shops that we call them here I don't know what you call them they're thrift stores is it mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. um yeah they, so they make costumes uh, we've got a, a treasurer um we've got a president because we're an incorporated society so you know so plenty of people probably I'd say a good 20 people in the band do something um, are dancers part of your group or are they yes. separate oh okay yeah yeah so actually dancers is a, a thing that's probably only been um really kind of successful in the past four years so we had Mm. tried dancers before but it was quite difficult so my former uh co-director she had a baby um and and also she got really into the dancing as well so she wanted Mm -hmm. to sort of form the dance troupe so we have four dancers at the moment which is a pretty good number I think like we we had six at one point and that was good too um, and they're really integrated now so they're doing most of the gigs with us mm-hmm. um occasionally we'll have um a separate dance troupe f- perform with us like you know the the kind of uh, uh, there's a troupe called the Brazilian Divas so they do the whole bikinis and feathers mm-hmm. um style um so we don't do that within without dance troupe okay uh, yeah, and, and so we've got specific choreography for the tunes so they understand when I'm going to call a specific break. Uh, mm-hmm. For tunes that can be a little bit more um, kind of amorphous in their shape, you know, where we really just kind of the breaks don't come at specific times and they have to watch for what I'm doing. A lot of our songs, we, you know, they do have a set structure. Uh, and so they practice before we practice and then sometimes with us as well. That sounds really nice. <laughs> I'm still hung up on the... <laughs> On the no drama, don't have any personalities <laughs> that are really hard to deal with? That's yeah, very cool. I bet you have a lot of people that just want to stick around for that because that's so rare. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the good thing is we'll do a gig and then we'll go out for a drink afterwards. And you know, you do have some people who have other commitments, like particularly people with sure. kids. I think it's quite difficult for them sure. to, you know, they've left a partner at home. Um, and you know, so as the band has aged as well, that's definitely more and more the case. Because when I joined, I was you know, 30 or so. And now, uh, you know, the, the band's average age has grown with me. So, you know, um, so we're now there's a big kind of chunk of people in their sort of late 30s to mid 40s. And it's just that stage of life where suddenly, you know, you've got a mortgage, you've got a kid you've got a dog that needs walking, you know, you're busy in your career. And so being able to commit that time, uh, one night practice a week, plus maybe two or three hours on a weekend for a gig just gets too hard for some people. Um, But we've had people, you know, leave for 10 years and then come back after their kids are old Mm -hmm. enough to sort of, you know, fend for themselves a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
When yeah, do you, I've seen that too. Oh, I just wanted to ask you, when do you have your rehearsals? What night of the week? Uh, we do Monday night. Now, mm-hmm. different bands have different rehearsal nights. So Wellington, Batacada, they rehearse on a Sunday afternoon, which actually makes it a lot more social because you can hang out afterwards. But I like Monday nights mm-hmm. because I think people appreciate that after you've had that first day back at work, it's cathartic to come and hit True. something. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just kind of a good break after that Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, and Do it you... also seems to be the time when most people are available. Mm. Are some of your members in multiple groups? Um, not very many. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is uh, there's another uh, samba group in Auckland that is uh, kind of a bit more of a part time one. It's run by it's more for the Brazilian community, mm-hmm. and they do mostly the kind of the samba, the Rio samba with a song sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so there's a couple of people that also play in that. Um, I'm in a band, I'm in a funk band as well, uh, and there's a couple of other people in the band that are in that band, uh, but I don't really think there's many other people. Um, there, there's a, a woman that plays in a steel band, so it, it's not, yeah, there's not very many people, and there's not many people in the band who who had played percussion before, mm-hmm. um, so they're not in a band mainly because they don't play another instrument, like AK Samba was the thing that got them into, into music. Right. Do you have a beginner, or how do you train beginners? Do you have like a time it's, for them or yeah it's a throw them in the deep end really so uh-huh. we we have the workshop then we give them a six week uh, sort of trial to see if they like it and if we like them I mean because yes, you know, sometimes these people that we don't <laughs> that are not desirable slip through the cracks but um so we'll pair them up with a buddy uh, and we'll do extra practices mm-hmm. for them we take them out of the practice and show them how things work because you know it's quite often difficult to hear what people are playing when everything's 110 decibels and yeah. you know and you haven't quite got it um we'll try and get them proficient in at least one or two things really quickly so that when they arrive they're like oh i know this one um so that they feel like they're actually making some kind of progression mm-hmm. what i have noticed in the last 15 years is is a real plateau so you you learn really quickly to a point and then you reach a point where you don't feel like you're getting any better. And that is the point at which we lose people. And what we try to do is try to get people to either a, a non-important gig. So when I, when I say non-important, I mean a kind of a community gig that might be a parade that if they mess mm-hmm. something up, it's just in front of like 10 or 15 people as we're walking past them. Right. Um, and so then you're kind of embedding them into the social fabric of the band and the experience that, that you get playing for an audience, which a lot of people have never had before. Um, and also when you've had to play under that pressure, you level up. And so then mm-hmm. when you come back the next week, firstly, you've had two practices in a week, basically, rather than just a Monday, you've had a Monday and a Saturday. So you, you've already improved just then. Um, and, and so then you start to feel like a little bit more involved in the band, like you're making some progress. And we and we run uh, sectionals, which is you know just one section at a time, um, if we can, um, just to tidy up some things or if people aren't clear about stuff. But yeah, it's pretty difficult. And as I mentioned before, now we've got this huge repertoire uh, and it must be daunting for people coming in who've never played anything before. You know, the most they've ever done is clap along to something or, you know. <laughs> so you were saying something about you had a workshop and then and then the beginner comes in. Do you have like a, a set, big like, uh, I guess, workshop where you're specific, blah, I can't talk, where you are <laughs> specifically targeting beginners to come and... Yes, so our our workshops are for beginners and for recruiting. Um, How often do you do that? 
we try to do it twice a year, but both of our hmm. dates this year were thwarted by COVID, unfortunately. Sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, I see the workshops as uh, two things. Like, firstly, it's an opportunity to, uh, you know, get to, to replace people who've left. But it's also an opportunity for the single people in the band to pick other single people that they might want to join for love opportunities. So, <laughs> Uh, actually i used to joke like first when i first joined ak samba i used to call it ak singles because it was just really like (laughs) no one was paired up with anyone but now actually most people are paired up now that's funny yeah it's like love island but (laughs) (laughs) now could you tell us about the rep you do in your group the rep Mm -hmm. sorry how do you mean the repertoire do you do like you do Samba Hege and um, Rio yeah, style. So I, I am probably an abomination to some more traditionalist uh, Brazilian aficionados because I play for what I think the audience wants as opposed to trying to keep things 100% pure. Um, so if you break down rhythm, then rhythm is hitting something, leaving a gap, hitting it again, leaving another gap, hitting it again, so on, and and then repeating that pattern that you've created until it's identifiable as something that is, you know, repetitive. Um, And that's the foundation of a rhythm. So no one culture has any kind of monopoly on the formation of a rhythm. Now, obviously, you do have different styles, which can be identified as being more towards one culture or not but there's also a lot of mixing and merging these days so and and you as you mentioned the samba hege is uh, a fusion um and so we are doing a lot of fusion stuff so while we've got a, a traditional samba and uh you know that like rio style samba and we've got a couple of samba heges and we've got an affoche type of tune as well we're also taking drum and bass and funk and a a bunch of other influences as well and melding them into that and why the reason why i'm doing that is because i i want to i'm getting feedback from the audience Mm -hmm. Uh, visually this is i'm not asking them um i i'm looking at when they start looking bored and new zealand audiences are great for looking bored because they will just (laughs) stand with their arms crossed so so if you can if you can get them to uncross their arms then you have scored a major win just for a start you know so so the idea is that you know through your set one person might uncross their arms and then the person next to them might think this person's uncrossed their arms. That's it's okay for me to uncross my arms. I might even start tapping my foot. And then (laughs) in the final half of the final song you're doing, suddenly everyone realizes it's okay to dance. And then they've had this like two minutes of of joyous experience where they all thought, (laughs) I wish I'd done this a bit earlier. I'm going to have to come and see these guys again. And that's how we keep getting gigs. I think. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so the repertoire is quite, important for me to appeal to the audience now if we were playing to a solely brazilian audience i think it would be quite different but we're not we're playing to a real mix you know you might have new zealand's got people from all over the world so you know the idea is you want to try and get their foot tapping so i'm just going to play tunes that i think are going to get their foot tapping and i'm going to try and write breaks where i think are going to like surprise people and make people think oh that was quite cool i wish they play that again um yeah so that that's how we work and then we have this kind of egalitarian thing where we'll get feedback from uh, the band like do you like this break you know do you think we should stop playing this as a, something we should resurrect from the past so mm-hmm. we've brought songs back that we'd retired 
mainly we retire songs to make room for new ones, but then sometimes those new ones aren't as good as the old ones. So, yeah, we just get rid of those, bring back the old ones with some modifications. When you're at a gig, then have you, do you have a set list or before you get there or are you solely basing it on the audience and the band kind of needs to be ready for, for you to call something? Yeah, I totally wing it. Um, like, this really frustrates the dancers because uh, they like to know what's going on. <laughs> and uh, so sometimes I go, how, mu- yeah, how much time have we got? And I'll, I'll just think of some yeah, rough things that we can do. And um, so I'll, I'll do a rough set list beforehand. Um, but the length of each individual song is not really set in stone uh-huh. um, unless, uh-huh. it, unless it's a set piece. We've got pieces that are set pieces, but there's also pieces that we can extend to fit. And um, I, I don't know whether a, a lot of uh, directors do this, but I sort of treat the band a bit like a mixing desk where you've got, say, you know, nine channels of instruments. And I think, well, I can just turn these three channels off and keep these other three channels going. And that's a different texture for the audience to listen to and then I'll bring them back in with this break and then you know so I'm very much kind of a mixing on the fly like composing on the fly almost but with the elements that we've got so you know that you can keep the agogo going with the tessera and that's going to work mm-hmm. um, so then that also you know especially if you've got a long gig and you start to either hear or see that players are fatigued that's a really good way of like okay we'll give the shakers a rest now they need a rest because they've just been playing, you know, solidly for five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so in terms of, like, how um, repeatable our sets are, they're not because we play it different every time. But um, the order of the things that we do um, is sort of dictated by the time that we've got as opposed to any kind of, you know, we don't go on and play the same set every time. We're not the... Sure. You know, yeah, we don't kind of have a fixed um, routine or set list. And you don't generally have melodic, I take it. No, um, there was a point about 10 years ago where we had some really phenomenal singers in the band. And we did uh, an affoche, which had, uh, is it A Morio? I think is the, do you know that one? I think it's called Amorio, which is quite a famous song. Um, I don't, so we Diana, did that. do you know that? It's, yeah, I think I do, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing it correctly, but um, yeah, but then all of those singers left. So we don't really have anything melodic other than, you know, I've put things together that you that I um, I sent you that video on Spandex Love Nest. Mm-hmm. So yes, can, yes. Uh, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, and so those are the things that uh, I've been doing to uh, bring that kind of melody in there. But really, we're an impact band. You know, we turn up, we make uh-huh. some noise. Uh, we go and the rest of the festival or event continues. How um, how long are your sets generally then, do you think? How long do you feel like you can play um, um, before like a, the, the crowd starts to fatigue, you know, with like just a lot of drumming? That yeah. it, you do have to change it a lot, which it sounds like you do to kind That's of right. keep interest I, going. Uh, yeah, I think people start to get fatigued at 20 minutes to half an hour. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I feel uncomfortable playing sets that are forty-five minutes, but sometimes mm-hmm. you just got to do it, and people might come and go. I would prefer to play two half-hour sets than one forty-five-minute set yeah. or one-hour mm-hmm. set because uh, you know it's just the variety of it. Um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, so yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So you you brought it up. Let's talk about it. You did that um, the spandex eighties show. I freaking was laughing. <laughs> oh, yeah. So hard watching, watching that. Yeah. 
It yeah, was. And you, really... there was that one dancer in the front. It was a very tall guy with, um, he yeah. had leg warmers on and these really short <laughs> shorts and this huge beard and <laughs> a headband. And I just could not get enough of like this whole thing yeah. you created. Oh, and you were, you had a guitar too. That's, yeah, yeah that's right. So, so that dance with your, uh, he's your screensaver now, is he? Your, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this really gets back to my uh, desire to have an 80s tribute band. And um, <laughs> uh, and also, so what happened, that was at a festival called Cuba Duper. And Cuba Duper started about 18 years ago. It was the Cuba Street Carnival in Wellington. And Cuba Street's this kind of quirky street uh which has a lot of, you know, like arty sort of shops in it. And so they closed the street down and they did this carnival. We've played back in the day at one of the, I think, I think we've played at several of the original Cuba Street carnivals. Then it lost its ability to do it from the, you know, the council didn't give them permission, but then it was mm-hmm. reborn as Cuba Duper. So we played at Cuba Duper, I think, four times or five times. But by the end of it, um, there's a lot of samba bands now in New Zealand um, and it could be you know because i think uh there's not so maybe not so much to do here i mean we only got color tv and indoor plumbing last year so you know you just join us <laughs> I, I mean you've seen lord of the rings that is literally how it is um, um so anyway i wanted to do something different so the previous year we had done uh this kind of tartan samba what we call tartan samba which is uh bagpipes and brazilian drums and we had also done this show in Auckland. It went down really well. It was at the the tattoo, which is the military, uh, you know, the, uh, it's like a military tattoo, which is where all the you know the uh, bagpipe bands, the Scottish bands, come together and then try and find out who's best. And so we'd done this kind of exhibition thing. Hmm. So at Cuba Duper, I thought, well, let's take it one step further. Let's see if we can pull a number of eighty songs together and use our existing rhythms as a backing. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of work. It was such a lot of work. Yeah, and I really, yeah, yeah um, I'm really pleased we did it. But if I knew how much work it was going to be, I wouldn't have even started, which is probably why we've not done it since. Because, <laughs> yeah, it took Do a you long think time. You're, but your background as a composer had to help you pull all of that together. Yes, definitely. But I'm not a brilliant piano player, and it took me hours to learn how to play the solo in Africa mm. by Toto. I only right. played that solo correctly <laughs> about three times in the entire time, and one of them was at the gig, fortunately. Nice. So, yeah, um, and you know, Jump by Van Halen, that and that's a fantastic tune, you know. But um, you got to get it right. <laughs> you got to get it right. The solo is pretty tricky.
and also, the, you know, it was trying to pull the other musicians in. We really struggled to find a PA that was loud enough when we were mm. practicing so the yeah. band could hear what um, what it was all sounding like. And yeah. because they couldn't, there was a little bit of dissent in the ranks, which I didn't find out about until afterwards. There were people actually saying, why are we doing this? This is not us. Um you know, we're, we, we're just a drumming band, you know, we shouldn't be kind of diluting what we are. Now, I think after they saw the results, I think most people were swayed that it was a really good thing to be involved with. But at the time, there was a little bit of, you know, mm-hmm. eyebrows being raised because it mm-hmm. wasn't until two or three weeks before that we got a PA that was big enough that the band could, you know, just mm-hmm. hear uh, what it was going to be like. And I think the dancers made it, you know, the, the dancers were yeah. really the focal point. It was, yeah great and um you know the costumes were great as well it was a good visual spectacular the only thing that was disappointing is it was really raining very hard and you could only get two or three hundred people crammed under the awning Uh, and we would have probably had a couple of thousand people there if uh, if it wasn't raining also made it you know how in the rain like your instruments become a bit more difficult to play as well so all the kind of this rainy humidity the keys were sticky and you know Mm. i don't think we gave it our best performance but I think overall, I'm really happy with how it came out. You know, one thing I really loved about it is I I felt like you had a vision for this thing. And it's hard. Granted, it was kind of a weird thing. I mean, it was like spandex and everyone was dressing, you know, in in these like 80s outfits that were neon and leg warmers. and, And you got people to buy into this vision and you did it. And I think that that part, I mean, you pulled it off. You did it well. And, you know, the dancers doing their whole thing in the front really sold the whole idea plus the costumes mm, yeah. and you you performed it well and I just I am impressed by the fact you got all those other people to buy into the vision because that sometimes is really hard when you're doing something that's as out there as that and that's one thing that I loved about it is that like this this dude pulled this thing off like it was, I get lots of crazy ideas like that for things and I, I just I I don't tend to go for them because I'm just I'm not sure I can get people to follow me through this really weird vision I have for something and I and I don't know I just found it to be really inspiring and that's one reason why I loved it so much is yeah thanks I mean I, I think that, I have you did to, that I have to give a lot of credit to Joe, who was uh my co-director at the time so she's actually the one directing the band oh standing um, in front okay yeah yeah um and so she was really behind it as well and Mary who was one of the dancers was really behind it and they're they're both strong personalities and I think a lot of people a lot of people saw that it could be fun. We don't have, usually have any problem um, getting people to Cuba Duper because it's arguably the best gig that we it's do. Fun. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you get to meet all the other samba bands as well. And there's a oh, bit of friendly cool. competition. Yeah, there's this kind of you know who's the best samba band. I mean, obviously it's us, but uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> and that actually, I mean, it's come a long way. Samba in New Zealand has come a long way, and they're really, you know, traditionally it was Auckland and Wellington being you know the 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 bands that people aspire to be but we've got some really great bands coming up now particularly Bay Batacada in Hawke's Bay they've really upped their game and they're doing some really impressive stuff so um and then and then other bands have really struggled to get off the ground they've lost some key members um and, and you know or, or uh they just haven't quite got the right mix yet but mm-hmm. yeah overall I think the, the Samba environment in New Zealand is pretty good yeah, it seems like there's more there than in Australia, which is right next door. Now, speaking of Australia and New Zealand, are you part of the Unidos, the, what is it, Kakatu? Kaka, kakatua. 
No, what's that? Oh, um, Rob talked about it where it's a group of um, players from Australia and New Zealand that get together to oh. play. No, I, I hadn't heard of that. And probably some of the guys in Wellington who are a bit more purist are into that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, uh, some of those guys in Wellington are arguably better or more proficient at playing than I am. Um, and so they would be yeah, probably more into that. Um, I, I try because I'm sort of controlling the controlling the musical direction and trying to do all these uh, different things. I think like I could be better. <laughs> I could be better on my instrument, but a lot of the time I'm not really playing that much. I'm more kind of condu- it's almost conducting mm-hmm. as opposed to playing. Yeah. Sure. Oh God, I had a question. It just left my brain. <laughs> But but yeah, this this thing that those guys are doing, well, Rob kind of started it, right? And they, I um, think so. yeah, him and and some other folks, but um, they meet up in a different city three times a year, I think he said, and they kind of form a big super group and all play together. It sounds oh really, that yeah, sounds, sounds quite sounds cool. Fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember is um that I can't remember the name of that festival you were saying, Cuba Dupa, Cuba Dupa, yeah, Cuba Dupa. Is that a you said something about did they actually have a competition? Is it? Uh, no, the competition is solely within our heads. Within your <laughs> brains, yeah, totally. Yeah. I got it. It's a bit of one-upmanship, really. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, we all want to do something that the other bands are, uh, you know, would aspire to or are proud that it's happening. So and sure, it's, sure. it's probably, uh, you know, it's like that thing that if someone already has a head start, it's quite difficult to catch them up. And Auckland and Wellington are like that. We've got that head start because we've got the repertoire and we've got the the base of players. But now these other groups, you know, that they've been going for five or ten years, they've they're starting to come along and do some really cool things. Cool. Is there a big population of Brazilians in um, New Zealand? Relatively speaking, yes, because you can enter New Zealand uh, on a without having to get a visa. I think mm. from Brazil, and I think, or it's easy to get a work visa from Brazil for a year. So you do have, mm. um, yeah, you do have quite a few Brazilians coming over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, it's like I mentioned earlier that the population is quite transient. We have got one Brazilian in the group at the moment. Uh, we did have three until before our first COVID lockdown, and then um, people have fallen away. It's, it's actually been interesting to see what how COVID has affected the band because mm. it has sort of. You, you, I think some people have thought hey, Monday night, like, I think I prefer Netflix and not going and hitting a drum. And so they've not come back. Mm. And that's fair enough. You know, we don't want people there who aren't keen. Um, So, you know, we're in a situation now where we really need to recruit. We need 10 people, 10 or 12 people. That's interesting that people decided that now they're going to stay in. Yeah, it's weird, eh? Um, Because, you know, I mean, to an extent, you're talking about a social group and part of the appeal of being in the band is that you're getting social interaction as well i mean it could be that they don't like me and this was just an opportunity <laughs> like finally an excuse to get rid of get out from under the tyrannical rule of darren <laughs> and his spandex yeah 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 i mean yeah i mean look at this stuff he makes us wear has he got some kind of fetish or something <laughs> So you have been practicing then. Um, I I think your yeah, your uh, um, level of 
of uh, staying indoors is probably different than ours probably. Well, right. not for the past three, two or three weeks because mm. we've gone back into this level three lockdown. But prior to that, we had had no cases of COVID right. for 102 days or something. So, it's, yeah, Amazing. we'd all breathe a sigh of relief that things were uh, back to some semblance of normality. Right. But obviously, we have a lot of returning New Zealanders. And at some point, the border leaked a case of COVID and they're still trying to find out how that happened. But now I think we've got about 130 current cases and there's, you know, five or 10 every day. So um, we're about to go down this level two lockdown, which is still kind of work at home if you can, no gatherings more than, you know, I think 10 or no, 10 people, maybe mm-hmm. I can't remember. Um, and the rest of the country has been in level two for that time as well. So all those other bands are practicing and going to get better than you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a possibility. Yeah. I would think that people would be itching to get together and, and play again, but maybe that's just me going back to what you said about people. Yeah. Some of them were, yeah. Some of them really missed it. And I think it depends on your general living situation as well. So that if you have maybe, uh, not had a great deal of social interaction because you've been working at home and or you know you live alone then any excuse for social interaction then becomes really appealing but mm-hmm. yeah maybe people who've have who have had busy lives have just said well uh, you know I'm going to give right. Amber a rest for you know a year or so on but mm-hmm. they'll be back we know they'll be yeah. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah yeah once they hear it again they'll be like oh I can't help myself yeah exactly yeah. So you were talking about um, excluding people who, you know, maybe they're not as committed or their personalities don't don't fit as well. How does that conversation go? How do you deal with? Um, well, well when people at the end of a workshop, we just ask people to indicate whether we want them. Um, uh, and uh, we just never tell them that they're a terrible person. So uh... you, you mean, the per- wait, you indicate to to the people whether you want them or not you're just like no sorry they, they they write down the sheet so we have a sheet like a feedback form and so they'll you know we'll say are you interested in joining and if so on what instrument and then if we don't think that they're a good fit then we just don't let them in we just you just don't, don't contact say, them yeah well we just say sorry you know maybe you know try another workshop uh, but maybe this time in personality development uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, self-reflection yeah that's right yeah um so it, yeah, mostly we'll just say, you know, sorry, you know, we don't have enough space this time. Actually, I don't deal with it. I, I Someone else deals with that difficult um, scenario, the, you yeah. know, the people that organise the workshop. It's not very often, like, to be honest, we have only rejected two people for this reason in 16 years. Mm. Um, it's just our final filter. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's just, you know, one guy was just kind of, oh, you know, you should run it like this. You know, if I was in the band, I'd do it like this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you're not even in the band yet. So, yeah. you know, and he was just really forceful with his opinions. And eventually I, I, he called me and complained. And I said, look, if you if you really want have some strong opinions about how to run a samba band, just set one up, you know, yeah. just go for yeah. it um, mm-hmm. and, you know, run it how you want it. Um, yeah, so that, that was the end of that one. Yeah. Well, we we asked that question because that's that's a difficult thing for a lot of um, group group leaders to deal with. Is some of these interpersonal dynamics mm-hmm. can can be really really stressful and really hard. Yeah, yeah. I think 
um, the I think samba bands generally attract a very kind of uh, center left, uh, like in terms of their politics and thinking, they're very much center left. That sure. it doesn't really attract people on the extremes of political opinion. Um, it doesn't attract the kind of the militant element. So those are the kind of things where you can start to get a bit of friction happening. So I think just by their very nature, you're already assembling a group of people who are reasonably like-minded. Um, and so it's not been too hard so far to to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, how do you guys uh, get gigs and, and, and I guess – kind of a money question like paying for your practice space and equipment and travel do you pay members to play or do they need to pay um you know or does the money all come from gigs or how how does the money part work for you guys so it's it's a mixture um originally um i think it was free to join but um we actually instituted a yearly membership fee um a few years ago now and i argued for this because i said that if you pay for something you actually give it some value you know Mm -hmm. now we only charge something like two dollars a week so it's nothing Uh, you just pay it up front like 100 bucks a year i can't remember Mm -hmm. how much it is i think we dropped it this year because of covid uh, to 70 but um so yeah it's 100 bucks you don't get paid for being in the band unless you're in one of the very few paid positions which is gig coordinator or uh the two um, directors so we we get a kind of a nominal amount for running a practice and leading a gig and it sort of just really reflects the fact that we have to come to every single practice and every gig so yeah we make a bit of a personal sacrifice there whereas band members are sort of free in a way to come and go mm-hmm. um we do earn a reasonable income from gigs but we do spend almost all of it on putting back into the band so you don't really have to buy your own costume like you know you have to buy a t-shirt basically which is yeah $25 but if for that spandex love nest gig mm-hmm. uh, I think four or five of the costume committee just trawled these thrift stores every weekend for weeks just buying up all that they could that had that was neon you wow. know uh-huh. um, and so all that budget comes out of our gig money we also have a practice space that we've got to pay for um, and we do supply sticks and we supply a certain number of skins, and we have some communal instruments that need repairing periodically. Uh, so we're, yeah, when you join the band, you get given a communal instrument. You're expected to buy your own one after a year or so. So yeah, we have to keep those um, uh, there. And then we sometimes subsidise accommodation. So if, if we're travelling, then you might mm. get either all or part of your accommodation paid for, or you might get a petrol voucher, you know, just to yeah. make it a bit bit sort of cheaper. So the band doesn't really make a profit because uh, it just gives back everything. So we sort yeah. of try and adjust our fees. We have a float in the bank so that we're not like short of cash. Uh, but, yeah, we try and adjust our fees based on the income that we think we'll make um, out of the gigs that we do um, and our expenses historically, and that's worked so far. Yeah. Are you a non-profit? I mean, that's what we call it here. I'm not sure if you guys have a different name for it. Yeah, it, it's it's an incorporated society. So it's, yeah, not-for-profit, yeah. basically. And we can make a profit, but we're not allowed to distribute that profit to the right. to the members. Mm. How do you... Uh, we, we touched on this a little bit before, but um, how do you motivate members to practice and get better? 
by trying to be uh, by trying to do interesting uh, things. I think so. You know, I was saying earlier about that we've got this enormous repertoire. And part of that is because I, I don't want to get bored with it and I don't want mm-hmm. people who have been in the band. We've got two or three people who have been in the band since the very first practice. Wow. So they, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I need to do things for them, um, but I also need to do things to, to sort of yeah keep myself interested, but also to build our repertoire so that we've got different material from the other bands. Um. And yeah, the motivation is really that you're just trying to encourage people. You're trying to show people that it's fun to play gigs because that's where, you know, you go and play a gig and you have a really great gig and then you go out for a drink afterwards or a meal or, you, you know, we might go to another town or city and play. So you're staying overnight and that's when you really get that kind of social bonding happening. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to, you know, get people in there without it becoming a cult. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, you don't want it to be sort of, too full on people need to be able to feel like they've got some free will in what they do um <laughs> we've not got a, we've not got a suicide pact or anything <laughs> for the end of the world in 2024 um yeah so you're just trying to encourage people to be there through just you know it's fun to be an AK Samba what else are you going to do uh, with your Monday night and your Saturday especially <laughs> what else are you going to do that's so cheap right how many gigs a year do you have? Like, how, like, do, is it sort of, sort of seasonal? Like in the in the warmer months, you've got yeah. more things and yeah, really seasonal. Um, probably thirty to thirty-five, mm-hmm. and so, wow, yeah, it, it comes it comes in waves. That's a lot. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it does feel like a lot, and then it can be a real struggle to get enough of the band together, especially when you're, you're the leader, because you got to be at every single one of them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, um. Actually, Joe, who was the the director in the Spandex Love Nest, she's just had a baby, so she's not there at the right. moment. So really, it's just me for right. the moment. Um, Mary, who is one of the dancers, who was my co-leader, she can still uh, lead, so that's good. But we've not got many gigs because it's winter. We're just coming out of winter, and um, obviously with COVID, we played um, we played a St Patrick's Day gig, which was outside, and it was in February, I think. February or March, I can't remember whatever date St. Patrick's March, Day is. yeah, I think. Yeah, and so we were just kind of in partial lockdown at that time and New Zealand had closed its border to uh, Chinese tourists, um, possibly even more than just Chinese tourists. And we were playing in Queen Street, which is the main street in Auckland, and it was really empty and it was this big parade and there might have been you know a couple of hundred people in the whole parade room Mm. and then you contrast that with doing the main Auckland Santa parade um down Queen Street which is uh end of November or beginning of December and you can have 200,000 people there wow um yeah and so obviously just before Christmas we end up doing all these Santa parades around Auckland then in January February March you get more the festival type of things these outdoor kind of mm-hmm. events and then through the year you have some private corporate events and uh, mixture like um, we did a a gig in July that was uh, down where they're doing the America's Cup mm-hmm. uh, so you know just for that but but it was sort of drizzling and there was maybe 15 people down there so it's a real, real mixed bag <laughs> you can you know you can um, you know two weeks before we'd done a gig with probably 300 people in a similar scenario but in a different part of Auckland mm. so yeah and we do a few not um, unpaid gigs a year as well so we try to do a couple of uh, like charity gigs uh-huh. if possible um 
some of the members have strong feelings about what charities we uh, play for as well. So, for example, and this is a good indication of how egalitarian the band is. So we won't play for gigs that are associated uh, with um, the casino, for example, mm. like because a couple of members have strong opinions that gambling is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, then the rest of us just have to go, well, you know, if they feel strongly enough about it and can put a good argument together, then, you know, maybe we won't do that. Or we'll have just we'll do it as a private, you know, white label gig where we're not badged as AK Samba, which yeah, we've done that before. What about things like protests or demonstrations? Do you guys participate in those? Yeah, but only um, like not in AK Samba mm. costume. So oh, I see. Usually those things uh, I don't. I, I don't play those gigs if I don't believe in the cause, sure. and the same would uh, happen for every, yeah, anyone in the band. But, uh, you know, things that we've done like uh, better pay for teachers and, you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it te- yeah, it tends to be protests for the social good, not like, you know, um, protests that might be really controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Now, you mentioned to us before we started on air here that you had been to um, Brazil, but have any of your your members made that trek to Brazil? No, I, I actually haven't been oh, to I Brazil. Oh, I thought you said you had. Oh, sorry. No, no. Um, I did think about, in fact, my mum has been to Brazil. Why oh. haven't I been to Brazil? <laughs> I mean, my mum's mom. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I... I've never, I've never got there, I suppose. I mean, I've been to South America. I actually did plan to go, but then um, I met my wife in Cuba mm. and decided to come back to New Zealand and go and fetch her from London, where she was living at the time. So, <laughs> so that cut short my South American adventures. <laughs> I see. <laughs> well, I was talking to Rob Akari the other day there in Melbourne, and I was, I was telling him, since we missed out here on our Samba season for the summer with, with COVID, that he just needs to find me somebody there to marry so I can move to Australia and play for the summer down there. Um, yeah. And then my friend Hiroko was like, do you have to marry somebody? <laughs> like, can't you just go? I was like, oh yeah, right. So anyway, yeah, you can, so you can help me out with that if you, if you're, if you're into it. Yeah. Well, I mean like AK Samba is no longer AK single. Oh, that's so right. That's right. Can't help you. I just, I just have to do a tourist visa and <laughs> come down there and play. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's actually good. That was one thing about Samba is obviously you can just kind of rock up to any Samba group that will accept you and, and go and have a stab. And it's really good. I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, I played in Seattle um, with Vamola. That was mm-hmm, great, mm-hmm. you know, um, played played a couple of practices um, in Portland. With the Lions of Batucada. The Lions, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you guys have some people out of the – Portland Symphonia, don't you? Uh, just amazing. I just I couldn't believe how accurate it was. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a woman, Chris Perry. She um Yeah, that's who I was thinking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. played with the Portland Symphony. She's retired now, but um yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It actually it made me really annoyed listening to myself afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not as good as this? Yeah, she she definitely knows what she's doing. Yeah, that's one. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we love about this podcast is we talk to people around the world doing market too and doing samba and all kinds of things just to kind of make the world a little smaller. You know, like let everybody yeah. know well, I mean, that each other's out there and and 
The good thing is that we've had some really good players come to New Zealand as well and do workshops with us. Oh, cool. um, so Monoblocko's been. Oh, had, nice. Um, uh-huh. I think it was a three-day workshop with them, or uh, two or three-day. Um, and Cabello, uh, Chris Quaid, Koto, I don't know what yeah. you know. And Brian, yeah. uh, Brian came over and, you know, when he was over here, he did a workshop for us too. Brian so, Davis, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's really good to get those kind of influences. Uh, but we do, you know, being at the end of the earth, we do struggle with, you know, getting that variety of people that might be available to you in, you know, your continent um, a bit more easily. Is it like how on average, like how long of a flight is it to Rio? Like, are those tickets like outrageous? I mean, you're at the bottom of the world, so they should be able to just fly over Antarctica, right? And get there. <laughs> just trying to think logistically, <laughs> yeah. you know, like. Well, I mean, technically, if you just go up vertically and stay there, New Zealand should just arrive <laughs> underneath you, right? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Uh, look, it's it's twelve or thirteen hours. No, was it? Oh, uh, it's twelve hours to LA, wow. so uh, it's fourteen hours to Vancouver, and I think it might be ten or eleven to Santiago. So it's going to be probably get a good fourteen hours from Brazil to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, when we can travel again? Because you can't come into New Zealand now unless you're a New Zealander, because we have. Or unless you're working on Avatar or some other, you know, big right. project. Um, <laughs> or for AK Sava. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we could get an exemption for that. <laughs> Must be able to. Okay, I'm going to cross New Zealand off the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, do you travel very much within New Zealand to play? Yeah, we try to. So, with, um, so Auckland is about, say, 150 k's from Hamilton, north of Hamilton. There's a band in Hamilton, Mm -hmm. but it's quite a small band. Um, And there's also a band in Tauranga, which is about 200 k's from Auckland. So, Hamilton and Tauranga often play together to get the numbers. So, we try and and we mostly play north of that mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the other bands will take that. So uh, that area, so Hawke's Bay, Batacada, or Bay Batacada, they'll take the Hawke's Bay. Wellington, take that region. You know, so we sort of stay a bit regional apart from mm-hmm. Cuba Duper, where we all go to Wellington. That sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah. It's good. And uh, in the, there's bands in the South Island as well. Obviously, you know, you then have to take a ferry or a flight. Mm-hmm. So they, they'll be mostly doing South Island gigs. Um, is there right is now, there a so group in Christchurch? You know, I think there is, mm. but I think it's tied to the university. Mm-hmm. So I think it forms and reforms every year based on the oh, students. I don't mm-hmm. think that there's actually a full time band there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, do you guys or does do the other groups in Brazil? Well, well, first of all. I have an idea for you. Um, if I had a group down there, this is what I would do. No, um, yeah. yeah, maybe at that, I, I can't remember the name of it, Kuka Buka, you guys, Kuba Duba, you guys um, yeah. have like everybody get together and play in a big super group together. Do your own thing oh, and then have yeah, like we a, do that. Oh, you do? Yeah, uh, it was like 150 or 200. Awesome. Drummers. Yeah, and so we, because we've had people like Monoblocko come over, we do have a bit of shared repertoire. Mm, okay. So uh, we are able to play four, three or four pieces, mm-hmm. and so that is what has that's great uh, has happened. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. So it's it's a pretty big thing. You'd have five directors out the front. It was <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, oh, actually, probably when I say that big, it's nothing compared to what you'd have in the Rio Carnival, I suppose, but big for New Zealand. Yeah, that's big. That's big for here. Yeah. Yeah. We have one in um, that happens in Seattle. And uh, basically what happens is the, well, what happens sometimes is the um, the director there in Seattle, he will lead it, but then the other directors from the other groups act as, um, you know, subdirectors like a, a metronome yeah basically yeah 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 it works yeah it depends i well. suppose yeah i think that's that's what happens with us like basically you've got five pieces of eye candy up the front of the band and whichever piece of eye candy you want to look at <laughs> that's the one you're uh, taking your timing from that's a, that's a, yeah <laughs> yeah that's eye cool. candy i'm using that in the loosest sense of, of course of, yeah. <laughs> of course um so this this stuff can be difficult to pull off. What's what inspires you to to keep going and to keep keep doing this? Well, two things. I think the social aspect of it is really important because um, it's a group of friends, and you know I've made some amazing friends over the past fifteen or so years, uh, which I don't want to lose. And what I've noticed is that when you leave the band that you do lose that connection. It's really hard to maintain that connection with the band uh, because I think even more than ever with our access to Facebook and things like that is that you feel like you're part of someone's life just because you've seen a curated photo of their, you know, trip to some kind of, you know, exotic location, but you haven't really spent time with that person. Whereas, you know, you are, when you're in the band, <clears throat> you're all doing something together. So you've got a shared thing that you're doing on a regular basis and that's what builds the friendships. So that's one thing. And um, the other thing is that um, when we get new people in, it's kind of fun getting them uh, up to speed. Um, and then to do these other side projects as well, like Spandex Love Nest, like Tartan Samba, and we've played with Cook Island drummers. You know, we've we've played with other uh, sort of drumming groups trying to put things together, Some you know, some more successful than others. And those keep me uh, interested, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Cool. So with these 35 gigs a year, you, you, I'm sure mm. you have some interesting moments that come up. Do you have maybe a moment that's funny or also maybe a really profound moment for you in performing? Yeah, the gigs are really weird. Um, one time we played at Grayland Festival, which is uh, you probably get about maybe – getting on for 80,000 people go to Greyland Festival. It's in a, in a park. Greyland's a reasonably affluent suburb in Auckland, and the park's very big. So they'll have multiple stages set up uh, where you've got different bands and, uh, and there's, there's stalls and things mm-hmm. like that. So um, we played this gig where it was like that example I gave earlier where, you know, everyone's standing with their arms crossed and then by the end of it, everyone's jumping around. You know, there's a guy up on the stage just jumping, 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 you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> after the gig, after the gig, a woman came up to me, licked me and put $5 in my T-shirt. And I thought, oh my I, have reached, I have reached fame. I've re- this is what the Rolling Stones must feel like. <laughs> Uh, wow that must be so, pre-covid yeah, uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah um one time i was even recognized in the supermarket car park uh <laughs> so, yeah, oh my god it's once, him. only the once i think the reason for that is that whenever we play a gig people are looking at the back of me mm. so they don't yeah this is it every photo of me is the back of me so I just have to keep doing those squats to keep my glutes nice and pert. <laughs> um, otherwise, the yeah, the audience would be disappointed. Um, 
there's been uh we've done uh some really amazing gigs where we've had really cool costumes like we've dressed all in silver um or we've dressed as kind of gangs of new york sort of thing and we get a lot of uh feedback yeah we did the steampunk festival we've done that a couple of years in a row and and you know when you've got other people coming up to you and they're also in this amazing costume and they want to talk to you about what you're doing that's that's a really cool thing it's the people engaging in you i think too many people may just stand back and not engage with the band thinking that we're probably unapproachable mm-hmm. and you know like I mean I've got to say I probably do have bitchy resting face sometimes <laughs> so I maybe look unapproachable but I'm quite happy to talk to people you know about what we do so um so yeah I mean I think you just have such a diversity of experiences um and especially here's here's two kind of really different experiences we play the Auckland Santa Parade which I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. which is maybe 200,000 people and you're talking about predominantly uh you'd say middle class white and Asian um people watching it and they're very reserved when they're watching Mm -hmm. then we go to Papatoitoi which is a South Auckland suburb where there's a really high proportion of Indian Polynesian um, people watching it and the vibe from the audience is so much different yeah. so much more different yeah um and the kids really get into it and they'll chase you down the street and they'll follow them and they'll be trying to hit the drums and things like that two gigs that are fundamentally the same but with a different uh result you know like in how the audience interacts where you know in a way that first gig it's like well like you know this is very much a kind of uh, this thing where i just need to watch and can't be involved as opposed to you know in papatoto you are you, the audience wants to be part of it you know mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know how it is for you guys but um we do get a real broad spectrum of that kind of experience here yeah it's 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 a similar thing here i would say that you have some audiences that you know they're they're more reserved and they they watch politely and, and mm, yeah and go ahead Diana. i was just going to say but if it's like a a gear a, a gig geared towards you know like carnival or something you know obviously people are going to be out it's there different, yeah. dancing. Mm-hmm. and also gigs with yeah. kids i mean i think you were yeah you mentioned that too is like kids are always a they don't care they're going to come up and <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I think it also matters what, like, what's the audience's expectation of it as well, because they, yeah. if they're expecting yeah. it at Cuba Duper, they're expecting to have a good time. Whereas if we're just at some festival and someone really just went there to drink wine, mm-hmm. we're just an interruption. You right. Know? We're like, who are these, you know, noisy people disrupting <laughs> yes. my Saturday afternoon? Yes. I don't even like this stuff. Yes. Is this what substitutes for entertainment these days, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. There, I've, I've been involved in... <laughs> This one sticks out in my mind. It was some kind of corporate benefit something and everybody was like in, you know, suits and ties and and the women were dressed, you know, very, very well. And it was this arts benefit thing. And I think they just didn't know what they were getting. We come into this ballroom just like banging, you know, just banging these huge drums. And they were just kind of like, what is happening? And some people were kind of lightly clapping along, you know, (laughs) it's just like it was. Yeah, you just. Yeah. No, I, I get it. We've done those sorts of things before, and I actually feel sorry for the people in the front row I know. because we are really loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really loud, and they—I don't think they, they were the, obviously not expecting it. And and yeah, they have their fingers in their ears. <laughs> but the, the thing is, those pay really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I find is interesting is that in a in a gig like that, you really have to try and play something that the audience will 
get behind. Yeah. And and that's probably a reason why I don't listen to a lot of Brazilian music. I listen to a real diversity of music, but not I'm not listening to Brazilian music thinking, oh, I need to copy that. You know, we, we have the Brazilian instruments, which means you're halfway there to sounding like you're a Brazilian band anyway. So, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you know, some real funky stuff like glitch hop and, you know, uh, drum and bass and minimal techno or, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of you know, uh, dubstep and things that have got interesting rhythmic elements. But then I'll also go and listen to some quite kind of unusual stuff from, you know, different countries like Afghanistan and you can think oh that's quite a cool little pattern that they've got there you know maybe I can incorporate that into how you know maybe I can translate that into how an agogo would play it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of a lot of things you can do but yeah yeah it's mostly just stealing cool. mostly just stealing <laughs> other people's ideas isn't it this is the problem wasn't there like a famous quote about artists are all just reincorporating each other's stuff and yeah exactly well that is a problem i don't know whether you guys heard about this but the national party here which is kind of like it's uh, the right wing party in new zealand they used a piece of stock for uh, stock music on a tv ad which eminem said that sounds like lose yourself mm. now to me it sounded nothing like it um and as a composer who had done TV commercials before, people would always ask me to go, can you write this like the Spice Girls? You know, can you write this like this? So uh. you always have to start from somewhere. The problem was that the piece of music that they had licensed, the composer had called it Eminem-esque. So I think that was the nail in the coffin. Because if you had just put those two pieces of music side by side, you would have gone, well, that's quite different. You know, it's like there's hundreds of songs use the same four chords or the same three chords, you know. Um, there was a band called Axis of Awesome, I think they're called, that did a kind of a medley of songs that all used the same four chords. So anyway, I mean, they ended yeah, up yeah, they ended they up um, paying several hundred thousand dollars in um, copyright fees to Eminem. But I think in in our community, there's a limit to how much actually works, and you're constantly taking ideas that you hear and going, you know, I'm just going to tweak this because that's pretty cool, you know, and I just want to put my own flavour into it. So I'm just hoping that I never, never have, uh, you know, some Brazilian guy coming down here going, uh, I wrote this and it's owned by Decca Records or something. <laughs> like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's we, we've we talked about, Diana and I have talked about this together, but there there is like this, we have to have respect mm-hmm. for, you know, like culturally appropriating things from yeah. from different cultures and and giving respect back to where they come from and but then there's also like the artist of artist in in us that that is influenced by a lot of different things and and mixing things together so I don't know where that balance is and I I don't know um yeah Yeah. we we talk about it sometimes and it we skirt the idea on the podcast but there's definitely room to discuss that um it is it's hard we have uh, a piece that I wrote that's based on a kind of a Bangra Indian sort of mm-hmm. rhythm. Um, and I think, well, you know, do does that annoy people that I've taken the essence of an Indian pattern and, I, and we're playing it on Brazilian drums? I mean, I don't know. To me, a rhythm, like I mentioned, is like you hit a drum, you leave a space, you hit the drum, you leave a space, and, and the spaces are don't necessarily have to be equal, and eventually you end up with something that people recognise and can kind of form a memory about so um yeah i'm not sure where that cultural appropriation thing begins when you are playing someone else's cultural music and you're not from that region 
which I'm not obviously from. Otherwise, I would only be doing Morris dancing or, you know, sort of right. you know, uh, <laughs> um, playing. Yeah, well, my, well, I mean, Diana, you can chime mm-hmm. in on this too. My, my understanding where we need to be careful, I mean, we, and is, is, it's in the directions of power, right? So like as mm. white Europeans have gone around the world and conquered people and taken over things and then um, kind of caused massive oppression and massive economic disparities between different regions of the world. And then the sort of added insult onto that is people are wearing bendies on their heads and, and kind of incorporating all these different things and, and using it to decorate themselves and, you know, and sort of, what am I trying to say? Like take on elements of culture without understanding where yeah, it comes from. I, under, right? I understand like, that. Like I, wearing dashikis and not knowing that like you're mixing cultures here with like your different earrings and this head wrap and all these different things you're doing. You're like not understanding the culture of what you're, where you're pulling from. And so like we, can be in danger of of doing that and not giving respect, not giving um, acknowledgement and even money sometimes back to these like really oppressed cultures in dire straits, like where this music is is cultivated from and coming from. And we get a lot of our um, pleasure in life from mm-hmm. this music. And we and it's just like sort of the giving back to the the folks that that created it who are literally suffering right now it's just it's almost like um an energy exchange i guess and 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 yeah it's 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 hard to know where that line is or what what's right and what's not and i don't know diana do you have have anything to add to that i mean i don't i mean first i'm struggling with it too i don't know where it is right yeah it's it's difficult knowing how to to deal with it and personally for me i mean i try to give back to my teachers you know be it going back to their community or directly to them, just in appreciation and knowing that I know where this is coming from and I, I'm not claiming it as my own um, or our group's yeah. own. It, it is difficult, eh, because we are, we're playing uh, what we identify as Brazilian music, which is, I would say, predominantly Brazilian flavor. And, you know, as I was saying, it's not really kind of we're not playing anything in a very traditional way, but people will see us as a Brazilian band. So we are building awareness of this kind of culture, but without claiming to be it ourselves, I suppose. So that I'm comfortable with that. I think that we're not passing ourselves off as Brazilian. We're saying we're taking influences and we're making it our own and we're doing, we're breaking rules, um, uh, it, along the way in terms of what a you know a traditional um, rhythm may be played like this but we're we've adopted it and kind of made it something else uh, but we're mm-hmm. not saying that what you were doing was wrong um, and we're not appropriating it for ourselves this is just you know it's us playing and having fun and celebrating the fact that the original idea from this came from from that particular culture so I mean I think I'm quite comfortable with that and, and also I'm quite comfortable with breaking those rules. I went to a workshop about three or four weeks ago with a guy called Doug Brush and he teaches at Christchurch uh, University and he's a fantastic percussionist, like the kind of guy that can play um, eight beats with his right hand while he's playing seven with his other, you know, in the mm-hmm. same bar. Um, and um, I questioned him about claves because half of the talk was about claves and I said, can you have a 3-2 clave and a 2-3 clave in the same piece? And he said, no, 
And I thought, ah, okay, I won't tell him about that. Yeah, I thought, we do that. We do that in our piece. But he's saying, well, the underlying clave should always be there. So, and then I was thinking, well, really, we're using it as a tambourine pattern. You know, it goes three, two, two, three. And and that actually works in that scenario. So um, I'm looking for those opportunities to break the the mold or break those kind of rules to try to produce something that's a little bit different that actually people can go well I see the flavor of that and I really like that and I like what you've done with it yeah as far as the clapping thing (laughs) um that's already been broken. I mean, oh, yeah. Diana, you know more about Cuban music than I am, but I have studied a little bit of Cuban well, plus, like congas like, during this pandemic, and they do it all the time. I mean, yeah, they I switch it. It yeah. switches. It switches in the middle of a song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, no, he, yeah, I, I think I've heard that before as well, uh, but we're just doing yeah. it every bar <laughs> in this particular pattern. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. It's just, it works uh, in this particular yeah. song. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine. People playing music and 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 getting influences from all kinds of things and, and breaking rules. But it's it's for me, it's like kind of the understanding of the the cultures where it comes from and to really respect that, like respect where it is and yeah, how yeah. much we gain from from it and and the vast inequalities. I guess I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I'm I'm still evolving on all this myself. Yeah, but it's going to be interesting to see where it goes anyway, because obviously we're highly globalized now, and we can just access anything we want on YouTube. So, uh, yeah, we can get these influences from all over the world, which is brilliant. I mean, you know, look at how many kind of mashups and fusions there's been in the last ten years. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I like Mm -hmm. I like that this that Brazilian music has its own version of drum and bass. Um, Mm -hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. Now you being from well living in in New Zealand, I mean, do you you have the indigenous population there? Um, yeah. Do you incorporate yeah. any of their traditions? How does that work? Um, not really. I think that does. There is a little bit of a problem. There's more of a there, line there. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult. Like we couldn't. It would be very difficult for us to do a hacker. Sure. You might have seen a hacker, like yeah. at the beginning of the rugby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I would feel uncomfortable uh, with that. About eight years ago, my co-leader was Maori, mm-hmm. and he would incorporate some kind of more of those sorts of things, like uh, you know, and I, that was great. I never really felt comfortable doing it sure. um, because I don't think I can be authentic in it. Um, it's such a, in terms a of, thing that I mean, right. not everybody could do yeah. that. <laughs> I don't know. That's so. Yeah. 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 Um, and the, the music, indigenous music, doesn't really lend itself to that crossover mm-hmm. um, sort of thing either. It's it's more quiet sort of uh, music, like bone flutes and, uh, you know, instruments. Like they have a thing called a purarehua, which is a, like I think in Australia you call it a bull roarer. So it's like a, a long string with a carved um, oh, yeah. piece of wood on the end mm-hmm. and it yeah and it kind of produces whirring kind mm-hmm. of noise so they yeah they've and they've got sort of you know percussive instruments as well but you'd struggle with volume unlike cook island drumming which is fantastic where we've played with them before um and really you know the the volumes are similar and the rhythms are the rhythms interlock very well but their their structure is quite different so you have to sort of work to try and build a shared structure around the music so that you each know when you're playing because they don't have the typical kind of 
tempo being the same the whole way through mm-hmm. a piece it jumps around quite a bit mm-hmm. interesting well is there anything that we have not asked you that you would like to share anything we haven't discussed yeah um no i think uh, we've done pretty well eh? it's an hour and a half i didn't think i'd be able to <laughs> talk about it for that much i was thinking this is going to be over in half an hour i haven't got that much to say about <laughs> um yeah so no i'm spent right on well thank you so much for joining us yeah. and being on and sharing thanks. your story yeah. great talking to you thanks it's been really great Thanks. We hope you guys enjoyed hearing Darren's story. If you'd like to learn more about AK Samba and Darren and see their links to the videos we talked about, go to the Brazilian Beat slash Darren Cottingham and uh, you'll find all the links and bio notes and everything, photos and all that information there. Um, we kind of touched on a lot of interesting topics there and it's something that Diana and I would like to explore somewhat more maybe in future podcasts about you know cultural appropriation and how we use this music and and yeah we 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 touched on several things you know as the united states is kind of reckoning with with a lot of racial issues in this country it's important to think about this stuff so definitely yeah thanks to everyone who's following us on social media diana is out there posting her heart out so um yeah thanks for thanks for being there and interacting Another way to interact is sending us a voice recording of yourself saying, this is the Brazilian beat. This is so-and-so from wherever you're from. And we can uh, put that into our our episodes. We'd love to... That'd be so cool. Yeah, we'd love to hear from our, our listeners. You guys are such a big part of this. So we'd love to hear your voices, your actual voices. So send us those um, voice recordings to the Brazilian beat at gmail.com. I love that idea. Yeah, I can't wait to hear from people. Another way you can support the show is to give us a rating on your podcast player. All the stars. Try really hard to hit all the stars. <laughs> <laughs> that helps other people find us. It means a lot to us too. Thank you so much. And if you ever have any difficulties um, with any of your players, you're not able to have them um, play the episode, please let us know. We had that happen this week and it was really helpful um, Yes, that we heard about it. That way we can take care of it because there were some, some issues for some reason. There was like four episodes that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So please let us know if you notice anything. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everybody. You guys are all awesome. Hang in there. We will come out of this stupid COVID thing eventually, and we will all get together and have a big drum party. <laughs> 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 It'll be amazing. All right. Hang in there, you guys. 